Hi, this is Clyde Bunyan, and this is Reflections on the Tulsa Race Massacre. One hundred years ago, evil reigned on black residents in Tulsa when white mobs massacred their black neighbors, all based on a rumor. Many Oklahomans do not know or understand the gravity of what happened back then. Many only became aware of this part of the state's history in recent years. So in this podcast, The Oklahoman presents excerpts from published reports of the events of May 31 and June 1, 1921. They were published in a 1971 Oklahoma City Public Schools textbook called Black History in Oklahoma. One excerpt is read by J.B., an Oklahoma City rapper and activist. The other is by Bailey Perkins, a local public policy advocate. This is Bailey Perkins, in the words of Mrs. Mary E. Jones Parrish, a Tulsa resident at the time and an eyewitness to the events. Mrs. Parrish wrote her account as part of the WPA Writers Project. One of the most horrible scenes of race hatred in America occurred on Tuesday, May 31st, 1921, and on Wednesday morning, June 1st, 1921. Mob violence occurred at Tulsa, Oklahoma, and was one of the worst that history has ever recorded on the face of the globe. The sad occurrence committed by more than 5,000 whites has blackened the city of Tulsa's character and placed a black stain upon this great oil city that can never be erased. I happen to note, being a resident of Tulsa, the Daily Tribune a white newspaper that tries to gain its popularity by referring to the Negro settlement as Little Africa, came out on the evening of Tuesday, May 31, 1921, with an article claiming that a Negro had been arrested and placed in jail and that a mob of whites were forming in order to lynch the Negro. Sometime during the night, about 50 Negroes arrived. Then scores with rifles, etc., went up to the district where the accused Negro was in prison. And upon their arrival, found a host of whites who were making an effort to lynch the Negro. The Negroes were given the assurance by officials in charge that no lynchings would take place. And as they were about to return to the Negro section, someone fired a shot and the battle began. All night long, they could be heard firing from both sides while the whites were marshalling more than 5,000 men who had surrounded the Negro section to make an early attack in the morning on more than 8,000 innocent Negroes. As daylight approached, They, the whites, were given a signal by a whistle, and the outrage took place. All of this happened while innocent Negroes were slumbering and did not have the least idea that they would fall victims of such brutality. At the signal of the whistle, 
more than a dozen airplanes went up and began to drop turpentine balls upon the Negro residents, while the 5,000 whites with machine guns and other deadly weapons began firing in all directions. Negro men, women, and children began making haste to flee to safety, but to no avail, as they were met on all sides with volleys of shots. Negro men, women, and children were killed in great numbers as they ran, trying to flee to safety. As the fighting progressed, they were capturing and taking all Negro men from their honest homes to a downtown hall, etc. Also, Negro women and children were being taken to different parts of the city. As they had cleared more than 500 homes of occupants, then the dirty work of firing and looting homes began. Torchlights were used with gasoline to burn up the Negro settlement. And in the meantime, they used large trucks loading up pianos, petrolas, and other articles that were in the Negro homes. The whole of the Negro homes were looted by these whites who met no resistance, and most of the Negroes were taken prisoners. We read the Bible about Sodom and Gomorrah, but the sights, as witnessed that morning, nothing could have been worse. One part of the city was cut off from the other by fire, smoke, and ashes. The most horrible scenes of this occurrence was to see women dragging their children while running to safety and the whites firing at them as they ran. Some of them were pursued more than 12 or 15 miles and some have never returned. Negro hospitals with numbers of sick were burned and many people perished in the flames, not being able to get to a place of safety. Tulsa, in which many Negroes have accumulated much wealth and fine homes, Greenwood Street, the Negroes' Broadway of Tulsa, and one of the best Negro business streets in the whole United States, now lies a heap of ashes. As the debris was being cleared away, bodies were found buried, burned to a crisp. They had no means of escape. The number of whites and Negroes killed in this raid will never be known. Several Negroes were tied to the backs of automobiles and dragged through the streets while bullets were being fired into their bodies. Women were being chased from their homes and volleys of shots fired at them as they were fleeing some with babies in their arms. These things, and many others, which are not mentioned, were done 
in America, which makes its boast of true democracy. Oh, America, cruel America, thou art weighed in the balance. J.B. reads an excerpt by Roscoe Dungy, editor of the Black Dispatch, published on June 5, 1921, four days after the massacre. In the article, Dungy mistakenly refers to Dick Rowland as Dick Howland. We did not correct the article. The Negro district of Tulsa was confined to a section of land about a mile square in the northeastern portion of the city. With the coming of the oil boom and the rapid expansion of the business district of Tulsa, it was soon discovered that the only available trackage property left in the city was completely covered by the Negroes in the Black Belt. In fact, the inhabitants of this most prosperous black community each year proceeded to get a firmer hold upon this much coveted section. Greenwood, the principal street in the Negro district, was paved and was at night a seething mass of black folks, equal to Chicago's State Street or Bill Street in Memphis. The statement that the Negroes lost one and one half million dollars worth of property in the colossal tragedy of June 1st is an enormous statement. In the loss of over 700 homes and 200 business houses, the Negroes of Tulsa have sustained a loss of over four million dollars. Now, on Friday, June 7th, the city commissioners of Tulsa extended the fire limits to include 35 blocks of the devastated area. According to the Tulsa Tribune, this action is accepted as meaning that the old black belt has been abolished and that the creation of a new Negro district further out and removed from the business district will be mandatory. Anyone who believes in circumstantial evidence might have a remote idea from the latest move that the vandals who looted the burning homes of Tulsa's bleeding populace last Wednesday were not the only culprits loose. An extent on that frightful morning of hell and arson. If Tulsa was really repentant, if she was sincere in her cry of restitution, she would have covered her tracks at least for the moment. The tracks which alone in their drift that Tulsa is not only preying upon the lives of its black citizens, not alone does she want the furniture, the jewels, and the money, and the draperies in the black homes. But this latest fire limit ordinance shows plainly that Tulsa coveted also the very land upon which black men dwelt. There are today in the jails of Tulsa over 175 white persons who are charged with looting. All up and down North Detroit, the officers have gone into white homes and taken out pianos, jewelry, carpets, silverware. One white woman said that she saw a white man go into a black man's yard and drive away in his automobile. As far east as East Tulsa, across the river, many loads of the effects of black folks have been recovered from vandals who, according to the story of the refugees, took their loot in the presence of the home guards of Tulsa. For example, Dr. P.S. Thompson, who before the conflagration owned a beautiful home, about a $10,000 stock of drugs, and who in his establishment for the past five years has employed at least six members of the race, tells this story. He says, 
about seven o'clock in the morning, the home guards set fire to the buildings on Boston Street. I could see them in their uniforms before they reached my place. Finally, they came to my establishment and broke open the door and ordered me out. They put me in an automobile, which was at the front door. Before we drove away, the looters in plain view of the home guards and myself tore open my cash register and were prizing open my safe. The business of Dr. Thompson is entirely destroyed. Men followed in the wake of the looters and set fire for the obvious purpose of covering up the vandalism of the cowardly wretches who, having now scattered, will never be apprehended. Dr. Arthur Johnson, ex-president of the State Medical Association, was shot down by a white boy about 16 or 17 years old, according to witnesses. He was rushing up out of his basement of his home, which was in flames, with his hands in the air. Two loads from a shotgun was his return for appearance on the street. He was not killed instantly. His body was thrown in a truck and he was dumped at the convention hall where after hours of suffering without medical attention, he died from loss of blood. Another shameful incident which shows that murderous intent of the men in the airships is told by Dr. Payne and Robinson. These two men with their wives succeeded in reaching the open country. They were finally spotted by the air murderers who showered load after load of leaden missiles upon them. They finally reached the woods. Dr. Thompson and his wife, however, were saved by leaping into a creek and remaining there all day with nothing above the water but their noses with which to breathe. Thompson and his wife effectually eluded pursuit by the hundreds of whites who swarmed the countryside by hiding in the thickets. W.I. Brown, a porter on the Katy Railroad and who reached Tulsa Wednesday morning with the National Guard recites this story. We reached Tulsa about two o'clock. Airplanes were circling all over Greenwood. We stopped our cars north of the Katy Depot going towards Sand Springs. The heavens were lightened up as plain as day from the many fires over the Negro section. I could see from my car window that two airplanes were doing the most work they would every few seconds drop something and every time they did there was a loud explosion and the sky would be filled with flying debris there seems to be no accurate statement as to the actual death list on either side gordon grady who reported the affair in his statement in the McAllister news capital says i saw dead bodies hauled away in trucks until i was sick and scores of negroes lay in the streets until late in the afternoon a letter from a prominent Negro in the city of Tulsa to the writer states that from what we can learn on the ground, about 100 were killed, equally divided between the two races. According to the Tulsa papers, Tuesday, the authorities are beginning to find the dead bones of Negroes out in the rural districts, which bears out the charge that black men were ruthlessly shot down who were not engaged in the conflict. Our investigator, a white man of unquestioned honesty and integrity states that the newspaper statements about Sarah Page, the white girl about whom all the trouble falls, are untrue. The story of Dick Holland, as told by many Negroes who say they know his story, is to the effect that when he entered the elevator, he stumbled and stepped on her foot. She immediately struck him. After he asked her to excuse him, 
She used, according to what Holland is alleged to have said, a stick or something that was laying on the elevator and he grabbed her arm to keep her from striking him again before he left the elevator. Our investigator also attempted to locate Sarah Page, but she has gone and no one seems to know her whereabouts. talk about what's going through your mind after reading that account from a hundred years ago start with you jb um i don't know is it uh you know it's hard it's hard not to um you know get emotional reading it um it's hard you know to just to picture all those things you know and um and know you know, we we always we, we always think of these uh, a lot of these issues being so far. You know, reading these reading these things and and um, just picturing them, um, it's 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 real and it's not it's not old. You know, and um, so I don't know. You know, it's I just it just hurts. It just it really just hurts my feelings. You know, Bailey. Okay, so the point that. JB lifted that we're not as far removed from this as we want to believe is so true. We still have survivors among us and survivors who have just recently passed within, you know, the past decade. And so there are people who have left their accounts with us, but also people who are direct descendants of those who were killed, who lost everything, um, who witnessed the trauma of that tragic time a century ago. And I'm thinking about how that trauma is still pervasive in our communities, because uh, this isn't something that was exclusive to Tulsa. Um, there was the Elaine massacre that happened. There were lynchings across this country. And knowing that in 2021, we're talking about these issues without true restitution or reparations given to communities, and they're still struggling to recover because of the massacres and and the lives taken a century ago. It evokes a lot of emotion. It was tough to read, um, but it's especially painful to know that we're still in a time where justice hasn't been served for those moments that even our governments participated in, right, the the destruction of a community and the the killings of of black people in this way. And so um, it gives me a range of emotions as well. One of the things that stuck out to me was this essentially was neighbor turning against neighbor, their neighbors. Um, What... uh, do you remember when you first learned about what happened in Tulsa? Oh, I, w- I want to say, um, 
Um, might have been 2003. Um, I mean, I remember. I remember. For me, it was getting out of high school around my senior year, senior year, um, getting out of high school. And this is how this is how I remember it. Is because I remember in high school, they they um, it was mandatory for you to take Oklahoma history. In fact. They usually give it to you when in Oklahoma City Public Schools. You had to. It was usually a, a freshman class. You took it your first year of high school. Well, I failed it the first in in my freshman year and had to retake it again um, before I could graduate around uh, junior or senior year, right? And the book was about. It was I mean, like it was a thick book about that thick. So I got out of high school, and um, I learned about the Tulsa Race Massacre. And I just remember being like, just so like mad that I had a book this thick that didn't mention it at all. And and not only that, they made it mandatory for us to learn it. And I had failed it the first year because it, it was just not interesting to me. Looking back, there was something about it that was just like not real, you know, to me. I had a similar experience to JB because I grew up in Lawton and attended Lawton Public Schools. And I vividly remember my Oklahoma history class because we had a teacher at that time who did not teach it well. In fact, I'll never forget the first day of class we learned about tying a noose. And it was very uncomfortable um, as one of the only black students in that class. and no mention of really anything related to how black people connect to the fabric of the state, right? There was definitely no mention of the Tulsa Race Massacre. That was something that I learned through um, my parents reinforcing um, black history in the household. But even with the accounts that I heard from my upbringing, I didn't get exposed to the depth of the impact of the massacre until later in life. And so during my college years. And so going back to talking about like systemic issues and um, part of how we're continuing um, the negative aspect of this legacy is how we're telling the story or like how we're not talking about it at all because that continues the underlining roots that led to what happened in 1921, right? And so by not educating everyone, so it's not even just black. So it, it's, it's, I will say this too, it's, it's wild that like there are black Oklahomans who don't even know the full depth of the story and the heritage. But everyone should know because this is a part of Oklahoma history. And with that in mind, um, what's your reaction to those who would say that having conversations like these, like this one, um, um, leads to more divisiveness? I see that a lot. People will say by us having this conversation and talking about what we're talking about, we're being racist against white people for having this conversation, right? Let's say I'm married. And the first few years of our marriage, I am unfaithful to my wife, right? And then um, 
we get counseling, we get help, and I'm no longer uh, unfaithful. Now, she might, she's gonna have trust issues with me, right? If she is, if she has trust issues, um, she's not wrong for having those trust issues because I gave her a reason to to feel like that, right? So what I'm what I'm saying is is that for me, for if if I'm the husband, I it it might make me feel some kind of way because I know I did something wrong to her. You know what I mean? But it's up to me to right that wrong. And so what I'm trying to say is the history, and not just with Tulsa, but the history of this country is, and in a, a lot of ways, hideous. Um, and someone who says, you know, they might say they're being divisive, divisive or you're trying to, you know, bring up hate or whatever. We didn't create those issues. We didn't create those problems. Those aren't things that started with us. If me me talking about something, A, that really happened makes you feel uncomfortable or makes you feel like you did something wrong, that's something you need to confront with your own self and look into your own heart and, and, and try to figure out why you feel that way. You know, that's not a that's not a me problem. That's that's on you. You know what I mean? For feeling that way. Me not me not reading about it in in high school and then forcing me to, to learn Oklahoma history, that is not only deceptive but divisive. You know what I'm saying? Those are the type of things that are divisive. We have to talk about it and we have to get the, these things out and it might be uncomfortable, you know what I'm saying? But um, the fact that you feel uncomfortable or the fact that you, that you feel like you, you might be responsible um, shouldn't stop you from wanting to talk about it. That's not that, that's not being divisive. And we see that these things, we, we have to keep talking about it because it continues to happen. I'll add that we can't fix a problem if we don't identify mm. it and we don't talk about it. Mm. And to JB's point... The past doesn't feel good. The reality is there is a stain on this country and within our state that we haven't taken the time to clean because we won't acknowledge that that stain is sitting right there. And that stain doesn't affect just black people. It affects all of us. And until we're ready to acknowledge it and do what it takes to get rid of it, then we'll continue to face the same issues over time. Like, inequities will continue to exist. Trauma will continue to exist. I think another issue is we take it personally as an individual. Some people want to say, I wasn't there in 1921. But the reality is... The past lays the framework of what we have today in these structures that exist. And so the way that we operate today benefits some of over others because of what happened in 1921, because of Jim Crow policies that were put in place, because of zoning policies that said black people can only live here and white people can only live here and the property values on the white parts are going to be higher than the property values on the black parts, right? I went a few months ago and walked around the areas where black businesses once thrived in Greenwood and I saw the markers on the ground 
what I also saw above me was a freeway. When you look in black communities and how highways are designed, um, they often go through areas that were once thriving communities for black folks, right? So we have to talk about those intentional things that have been done in the way that we've designed that make it harder for black folks to catch up, to get to equity. And if we're not talking about it, then it hurts Oklahoma's progress to move forward. And I'll say that I believe that reconciliation hasn't arrived yet. We've done a whole lot of things to give lip service to what happened to the massacre, but reconciliation requires restoration. And restoration requires restitution and reparations to help the victims, their descendants, and the devastated communities to rebuild. We heard in the accounts that we read of how Black bodies were dragged on streets, how businesses that were once thriving were burned to the ground and no support was given. Insurance claims were denied. So people had to start all the way over again. Because in in 2021, if a building catches on fire, we expect someone's insurance to help cover the cost or we expect there to be some government aid to be there to support. And those were intentionally denied to black people based on false allegations, right? And so we can't talk about what's going on today without acknowledging what's been happening in the past. And if we can't get past that, it's not about whether or not you were here in 1921, but talk about how you benefit from how our state has been designed since then, then we can't move forward and we can't get to progress. Hmm. Wow. And on that, I would say what, uh, finally, what implications? I mean, the Tulsa Race Massacre, there are lots of implications that we can gain from, glean from it. But uh, for today's society, you know, what implications can we learn, can we take from today, from that incident, uh, to help us move forward and ensure that that event or an event like that never happens again? I feel like that probably would have happened whether or not that happened with in the in the elevator with Sarah Page or not. I think that that with with Sarah Page, I think that that was just what they used to to jump it off. So what I, what I'm saying is is that is that they didn't massacre um, a whole group of people, a whole a whole community because of what happened to they, what they think happened in the elevator. They massacred a group of a whole community because the idea of Black Wall Street, the idea of what was going on in that community, what was actually going on in that community, community was a threat to white supremacy. Whenever people feel threatened like that and they feel like their well-being or their future or everything they set up is being threatened, then America has a, a history of destroying it. And that's all that happened. And I think that, you know, the only way for things like that not to happen again is, you know, you see it all the time um, 
Like, for instance, I did a rally on 23rd Street um, to honor the, the March on Washington, right? It was a solidarity um, rally. And then all of a sudden, I'm, I'm in Black Lives Matter, and I got, you know, this person coming into town, this person coming into town. But the idea was is that there's a group of people, of, of black people, who are threatening white supremacy tonight. So we need to go out there and make sure we stop it. And that's why people were showing up with ARs. There was nothing threatening about what we were doing except for honoring uh, the legacy of Martin Luther King. I think that the only way for those things, something like that not to happen again, is if they don't feel like somebody's trying to take something from them. And black people having things makes, peop makes white people feel like they, they might be losing something. I think how we tell the story matters in giving space to truly reconcile with the truth. And we heard in the readings of the firsthand accounts that there could have been thousands or there were thousands of black folks in Black Wall Street who lost their lives. But the media account from that time said that there were probably 100 people who died and half of them were of equal number of, quote unquote, both sides. If that was the only narrative we had then we could have never known what has truly happened to the destruction of an entire community. And it's hard for some people to fathom that that happened because of truth being suppressed. You have to understand the past to be able to understand how a bill that says talking about quote-unquote divisive topics in schools, about race and gender, about the things we're talking about today, perpetuates trauma and doesn't allow us to move forward in progress because now we're trying to shape the narrative to align with what people were conditioned to believe versus having authentic conversations about the truth that helps us to move forward, that helps us to think about policies that we're putting in place, the structures that have been built, and figuring out what we need to do to go forward to build an Oklahoma that we all want to see. Bailey Perkins, JB, thanks for sharing your time with us and for your insight. And thanks to those who are listening. The resource book Black History in Oklahoma was published in 1971 by Oklahoma City Public Schools. It was edited by K.M. Teal and Sonia King. Editorial Advisory Committee for the book included several civil rights leaders at the time, including Ruby W. Ewing, Ada Lewis Fisher, Eddie Jackson, F.D. Moon, Vern Moore, and Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the Oklahomans' reflection on the Tulsa Race Massacre.